You're listening to the Antioch Initiative Podcast with your hosts, Nick Robertson and Caleb Gunderson, as we discuss the life of a Christian and our role in the Great Commission. In this episode, we're interviewing Dick Brogdon, the founder of Live Dead, a missions organization devoted to glorifying God and bringing the gospel to the unreached. Today we're here with Dick Brogdon, and he's going to be talking to us about abiding. So, Dick, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in with abiding, what it is, and uh, maybe you could just start off by defining what abiding is. Abiding comes from the word meno in the New Testament, the Greek word meno. It's where we get our Latin word mensio or the English word mansion. It's your home. It's where you spend your time. It's your dwelling. And so... Intrinsic to the New Testament understanding of abiding is the critical concept of extravagant time in the presence of Jesus. So when we talk about abiding, we're not talking about just a dry spiritual discipline. We're talking about the delight of being in the presence of the one who satisfies our soul. And not just in the moment or a fleeting period, but an extended time. So if we'd unpack that a little bit in the definition of abiding, I would say it has two critical points. One is the discipline of abiding, and one is the state of abiding. The discipline of abiding, that is, every morning, in the Word of God, in prayer, is the key components for an extended period. Not just for five or ten minutes, but for an hour or a couple hours. That just lingering and lavishing affection on Jesus and hearing from Him. And it can have different components. Some people like to journal or to color or to sing. But the the essence for all of us, the commonalities, would be the Bible and prayer. Now, through the centuries, people have called it different things. People have called it your quiet time or your daily disciplines or your daily light. It doesn't matter what you call it. The the critical thing is that you spend extended time in the presence of Jesus uh, on a daily basis. So that's the discipline of abiding. The state of abiding is the all-day, all-long enjoyment of Jesus through the Holy Spirit on an unbroken basis. So it is learning while you're driving or doing dishes or in class or in a conversation or laying down for a nap or playing with children. You know, we make a million decisions a day. That's exaggerated, but to constantly be aware of the presence of Jesus. So we don't want just the discipline of abiding where you check in in the morning, then, hey, sail off into the day and see Jesus later. But you also want that state of abiding, which is every moment and every breath, growing in awareness of the Lord through the precious Holy Spirit and communing with Him. So a full-fledged, robust definition of abiding would say, abiding is extravagant time in the presence of Jesus that is lived out in both a discipline, fixed regular times. So I spend 50 minutes of adoration, just thanking Jesus, praising Him, adoring the Heavenly Father. I'll do 15 minutes of confession, not just confessing the things that I've sinned or fallen short, but also confessing where God is strong and has sustained uh, and worked in my life. That's great. And then the third aspect would be the thanksgiving. And it doesn't have to be all like spiritual thanksgiving, which is true. I'll do that. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the body of Christ. But I can also do stuff like, thank you for the sunrise. Thank you for these nice jogging shoes. Thank you for the beautiful mist. Thank you for the, the autumn colors or the, 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 the frost or the spring leaves coming out. You know, so thank you for this breeze and thank you for health. And 
So I just try and cultivate for 15 minutes an attitude of gratitude to the Lord on things both spiritual and practical. And then the last 15 minutes is supplication, where I will pray for certain needs or certain people that are close to my heart. And that's actually intentional. For my prayer time, I don't want it to be a lot of asking. I'd rather be a lot of thanking, praising, confessing, and a little bit of asking. And in that time, I'll do a couple other things. I'll try and pray in the Spirit for at least five minutes or a section of road. You know, I'll pick a tree way down in the distance and say, just going to pray in the Spirit till I walk past that tree. And then the last five minutes of my walk, I try and not pray or say anything. And I just say, Jesus, whatever you want, speak. So that's my first hour. Then I get home. My wife has made chai by that time. Nice. I get a cup of chai. I sit down with my wife for a few minutes. We just drink our chai and talk about the day for a few minutes, ask how each other is doing. And then we split. We don't do our abiding together. She goes up to her room. I go to mine. I go to my office. And I, I spend an hour in some type of word reflection. Usually I read a devotional, one of the old dead guys, just a chapter, you know, whether that's Fenelon or Kempis or... Uh, St. John Climacus, or one of these kind of mystical old guys. I like the old devotionals, or a book on prayer, or a Ravenhill book, or an okay. Andrew Murray book, something like that. I'll read a chapter. Then I have an old D.L. Moody hymn book, and I read a couple hymns. And then I open my Bible, and I do three Testament, Old Testament chapters, one psalm, one gospel, and one New Testament epistle. And I mark my Bible all up. I read a couple years ago about when kings come into their time of leading, they should write down the, the scripture for themselves. So I've started that, and on my reading of the Psalms is actually a writing of the Psalms. I'm writing out every Psalm by hand. So every day I write out one Psalm. Nice. And so then I'll work my way through the scriptures, mark up my Bible, pray. Then I have a prayer list in the front of my Bible that I will close my time praying for a prayer list. Different people, leaders, family members at different times. And then nice. that takes about an hour. So then I, then I go to sit at the piano and I play worship songs or grab my guitar and sing worship songs. So our abiding time is about two and a half hours a day. Okay. Is, we don't, I don't watch a clock, but you know, by, if, I, if I go through my rhythms of the day, it takes about two and a half hours for me. And that is what I referred to earlier, the discipline of abiding. Okay. And then all day long, cultivating prayers, arrow prayers, breath prayers, uh, reaching out to Jesus. If somebody's talking to me and I know I have to answer, I'm listening with one ear and I'm praying at the same mm. time, saying, Jesus, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to answer? So wow. growing in that aspect of the state of abiding as well, which is all day long. Yeah, that's great. Um, that sounds similar to what the Bible talks about in walking in the Spirit. Mm. Would you agree with that, just keeping your mind on, on God on a consistent basis? Yes, and I think being intentional about it, I think it also does start as a discipline because I don't naturally always think about the Lord I naturally would kind of default to my physical things. Do I know what to do? Do I know what to say? And usually it's only when I get stuck that I turn to the Lord. But I think walking in the Spirit or the state of abiding is before you get stuck, asking the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so that requires a bit of ongoing humility, the lowliness, to say, no, you know, I maybe don't have the answer, but Jesus, what is your answer? So it requires you to slow down a little bit, which we don't like to do in our hectic lives. Right, right. Definitely. So when it comes to abiding, can you tell us a little bit about how crucial it is to the believer on a given basis and what kind of happens when you're, when you're unplugged from, you know, the Holy Spirit? 
Yeah, I love what Jesus said in John chapter 15 when he's talking about this. He says, without me you can do nothing. And the Greek's a double negative. Essentially, Jesus said, without me you can't do nothing. So there's this <laughs> emphasis, you know, and, and we just think we can't do the hard stuff without Jesus. But Jesus saying, you can't walk, you can't breathe, you can't write an email, you can't teach one class, you can't have one conversation well without wow. me. And so that's how critical it was to Jesus. And we don't walk in that reality. We just kind of walk in an insurance approach to Jesus. I'll do everything I can. And when I, when I run out of my own ability, then I'll turn to you. So Jesus, I think, wants to reorient us and say, no, you, you actually can't do nothing without me, even the simple stuff. And so when we spend a lot of time with Jesus and when we abide, we reflect him. We talk like him. We walk like him. We think like him. We smell like Him. We react like Him. And the danger is, when we haven't spent a lot of time with Jesus, when we're not sensitive to His voice, without knowing it, we are acting like the opposite of how He would act. And the tricky thing is, it seems good. It seems wise. It seems confident. It seems the right thing to do. And we are in this blindness of living, because we're not actually living Christ-like, but we think we are. So it becomes all the more critical that we are aware we can't do anything without Jesus and we can only do stuff like Jesus would do if we've spent a lot of time with him. Because it's like any friendship or any relationship. The more you're around someone, you pick up their idioms, you pick up their mannerisms, you begin to act and you can tell who people's friends are by their their behavior, you know, because you see even in prayers, I can always tell what spiritual tribe people come from by how they pray. Because they'll say certain things or they'll have a certain demeanor or even addiction to their prayers. And you're like, oh, I can tell what discipleship tree they came out of because you listen to their prayers. Well, magnify that out into all aspects of life. When you spend a lot of time with Jesus, you start sounding like him. Three principles that we could say are in common for every missionary to reach Muslims. And they would be these three. That in interaction with Muslims, in reaching Muslims, three encounters are woven together like a threefold cord, and almost invariably, when any Muslim comes to faith, these three encounters have been interacting with one another. And so what our goal would be, as missionaries to Muslims, is how can we be active in leading our Muslim friends to encounter the Lord, the truth, His love, and His power in an ongoing daily basis. So the three encounters are these, love encounter, truth encounter, power encounter. And at some level, every Muslim has come to the Lord has had some type of experience in each of those. So what are they? Number one, the love encounter is the reality that missions comes down to life on life with real people. Now we can use media for evangelism. We can have some of these broader tools, but at the end of the day, it is my life and the life of my Muslim friend in interaction and union and the give and take of relationship over time. And so the first part of that love must be my love for Jesus. I can't see Muslims as a target. I can't see them as a number. I can't see them as an object. I need to see them as someone in the image of God that I really love because Jesus really loves me. And I am so full of love for Jesus that I want others to experience the love of Jesus. And I tap into his love for the other. And then out of that, 
in that love encounter. I'm serving them. I'm trying to meet needs. I'm driving them to the hospital. I'm visiting them when they're sick. I'm taking them gifts on their feasts. I'm inviting them to my home for my feast. Meeting felt needs, responding to critical things when they are sad or when they're happy. So it's that life on life, love of Jesus. And the Muslim needs to experience and to interact with relational love that is centered in Jesus loves me, I love Jesus, and therefore I love you, and I want you to know the love of Jesus. And then practically living that out in acts of service, kindness over time. Okay, so that's the love encounter. So all of us who are missionaries to Muslims, we need to be looking for today, how can I love a Muslim? How can I serve a Muslim in a tangible, relational way? The second encounter is truth encounter, and this is exposure to the Bible. This is exposure to the Word of God, and it's not the end, it's the means, because the end is the character of God and the person of Jesus. We want Muslims to meet the God of the Bible, because that is the true characterization of God. We want them to meet the God of history, which is fully expressed in Jesus Christ. So we want Muslims to meet Jesus, the living Word of God, and Jesus is best expressed through the scriptures. And so we are early and often trying to quote scriptures, give out scriptures, audio, visual, whatever it might be, and build our case on the scriptures. We want Muslims to encounter the scriptures. We want to leave Bibles with them, show them how to download the scriptures under the phone, show them how to access the scriptures on websites, give them scriptures and music, build our evangelism on scriptures, build our discipleship on scriptures. And if we can at all means get them hungry in the Word of God and studying the Word of God, that always bears fruit. doesn't mean that's quickly. But almost every Muslim that will go through an extended Bible study through the Gospels of the love of Christ, many will fall out. But those that will keep working through, most of those come to know the Savior because they fall in love with Jesus as He is described in the Word. Or they come in awe of Jesus as He is described in the Word. So, not my testimony, not some fancy gimmick, not some even apologetic necessarily, you know, wordless book or three circles, all that stuff's good. We need them to encounter Jesus as Jesus is described in the Word of God. And so that's that second encounter. And then they read the Bible when we're not with them. The Lord gives them dreams and visions about scriptures or about the character of God. That's the second thing. Every missionary needs to be very, very active in how do I get the Word of God to my Muslim friends. How do I quote it, sing it, share it, um, resource him, his children, his family, his network with the Word of God, local heart language in ways they can understand. So, love encounter, that's the relational service, friendship peace, truth encounter, Word of God. The third encounter is what we call the power encounter. This is the dynamic intervention of the Holy Spirit in ways beyond what are normal or scientific. So this is a divine healing. This is a demon being cast out. This is a dream where Jesus reveals himself or some type of power encounter showdown. Now, we can't orchestrate that, but we can pray for it. On the first two, love encounter, we can be active in that. You know, we can love and serve Muslims in friendship. Truth encounter, we can be very proactive in getting scriptures out, quoting the scriptures, bringing conversation back to the scriptures. Power encounter, we can pray for, but we can't determine when someone has a dream. We can pray for healing, but that's up to God to heal. 
we can pray for demons to be cast out and believe they will be, but ultimately that's God, right, who's doing those things and the dramatic power encounters. But almost invariably, in every Muslim's journey, there has been some type of power encounter, some type of dream or healing or divine act. And so the missionary to Muslims is taking those three encounters and they're going to be applied different ways according to your personality and your context and your season of life. But across the board, I would say truth, love, and power encounters are always interwoven in the journey of a Muslim coming to faith. And so my encouragement to any missionary or any minister or any man or woman working with Muslims is today, Lord, how can I be involved with my Muslim friends that would lead them to a love encounter, a truth encounter, and a power encounter? And whatever is the medium, the center of those encounters is the person of Jesus Christ. How do they see the love of Jesus? How do they hear the truth of Jesus? How do they feel the power of Jesus? Because it is those three components. There's other variables. But when I look at the breadth and scope of work amongst Muslims across all different places of the world, that's what I run into over and over again. When a Muslim gets saved, there's been this interaction of love, truth, and power. So therefore, what I see incumbent upon us and anyone working with Muslims is, Jesus, today, how can your truth, your love, and your power be manifest through me to my Muslim friends? And then the creativity of God and the diversity of his body, it'll be expressed different ways. But at the end of the day, you boil it down to love, truth, and power. That's really good. So when it comes to uh, having a conversation with someone and you're wanting to, to insert truth, but there's pushback, I, I know that probably takes navigating with the Holy Spirit, but is there oftentimes where you just back off a little bit so that you can maintain a relationship or... What does that look like? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think it starts with intentionality about always being a Jesus Bible person. Not in a Bible-thumping way, but always quote Jesus, right. always reference the Scripture. So you're out there flying the flag. You see the Holy Spirit's at work even before us. And so um, there's people out there who want to know more about Jesus and want to know more about the Bible. So advertise, you know, through your verbal communication. Be that Jesus Bible person for the one who's wanting more. Now, you are going to reach some who are initially resistant, their stereotypes or hardness or their layers of deception by the enemy. So things like Proverbs, stories, songs, humor, um, parables. When Jesus was encountering heads or hearts that were hard, he did this indirection, which didn't necessarily state the point right out there in black and white, but it was arresting enough that the person had to chew on it and think on it and at some point the light would come on you know and uh, and it would lead to other conversations so you don't necessarily want a lot of confrontive interaction though sometimes that is necessary but you want to be able to tell a story or use a proverb or contextualize a song and sometimes then you ask with a question what does that mean what do you think about that um I've had some interesting uh, times with Muslims where I've had Muslims tell me how best to evangelize them. A humorous one was we had a new missionary come to Sudan and he said, Dick, I need someone who is Sudanese to come teach my team about how to reach Muslims. And so I said, well, 
I suggest my friend Majid, who is an Arab believer, and I gave him the number, and call him up, and you can be honest with him. I said, he knows who we are, what we do, and he can come share. Well, a few weeks earlier, that same friend of mine had asked for the name of my lawyer to register his business, whose name was also Majid. Okay? So he got, took my number, and later on he went to his phone to call Majid to come share with them how to reach Muslims. And he called the wrong Majid. He called the Muslim lawyer. So he calls this Muslim lawyer and he says, Majid, would you come to my team? As you know, we're a church planning team trying to evangelize Muslims. Would you come and share with my team how we can best share the gospel with Muslims? So this Muslim lawyer, and he's traveled, so he's a progressive. He was a little stunned. He said, uh, okay. And again, on their phone, so my, my friend doesn't realize his mistake. They give directions to the house. They get set the time meeting. The door gets knocked on. He opens the door, and then he realizes, I called the wrong Majid. Wow. So here's this Muslim lawyer coming to teach our church planning team, or his church planning team, how to reach Muslims. So he's just shocked. He brings him in, and that Muslim lawyer said, here's how Muslims think. If you want to share your faith, here's some ways you can do that without being inflammatory or confronted. And, and the whole team is just like, you know, they're anxious and nervous and like, our cover's blown, we're done, and it's gone. But nothing bad came out of it. And they had the wonderful opportunity of hearing a Muslim perspective and how their faith should be shared. Wow, that's really cool. I had a similar experience at the prayer breakfast. I took the Minister of Health from the Islamic Republic of Northern Sudan to the prayer breakfast in Washington. And because I had a high profile in Sudan, I said to him, I don't want you ever to feel tricked or to feel like I'm abusing our friendship. I said, I am a missionary with the Assemblies of God, and my calling is to help Sudanese Muslims come to know Jesus. And he, I said, I don't want you to ever feel betrayed by me, you know. And he, he looked and he shook his head, and we were up in a hotel room in Washington, D.C. He, he was quiet for a moment, and then he said to me, hmm, what you're trying to do is very difficult. If I was in your shoes, this is what I would do. And for two hours, he told me how to evangelize his own people <laughs> and, and gave me um, those type uh, of things. So you're not going to try and be inflammatory, but you have to deal with hard truths. Mm. And you have to learn how to put those in expressions that people at least wrestle with them. It doesn't mean they're going to agree with them right on. Right. But at least put it in a format that they'll chew on long after your conversation has ended and they haven't rejected it because of your demeanor. They haven't rejected it because of your arrogance or your cultural imperialism. But it's in packaging. Again, they don't agree, don't agree with it, but they can at least think about it. Then the Holy Spirit uses that when they go home in their thoughts and their sleep to come back to to revisit it. Okay, got it. Well, when it comes to just knowing the culture, I feel like it could be very easy to be intimidated by the culture. So that you don't want to, you know, take a wrong step in, in, in a conversation, like you're saying, and be inflammatory. So what would you say about that? I mean, would you, would you tell someone to make sure that they know culture well and they know the, the person to whom they're speaking well? Or would you say to not be afraid to, be, to say what you're going to say and to have a conversation with someone openly? We certainly don't want people to be afraid, but we don't want to confuse boldness with arrogance. So I would say, to answer your question, begin with asking a lot of questions. When you're new in a culture and you're meeting a Muslim friend and you're talking about theological things, things of faith, which we want to talk about, we don't want to spend a whole 
lot of wasted time on Manchester United or the crops that year or political mm-hmm. changes or whatever. But ask a lot of questions. So go to your Muslim friend and say, I, I think that the Quran or Islam says this about prayer. Is that true? Could you help me understand what Islam teaches about prayer or what you think about fasting? You know, ask a lot of questions. And then pivot, listen, even if that takes some length. Listen, say something like, oh, that's interesting. Thank you for helping me to understand that. Because in my faith, what the Bible teaches about prayer is this. So when I was a young missionary, a Swedish man named Arnold, who worked with Operation Mobilization, took me with him under his wing to do evangelism. We would go and sit in these courtyards of Muslims late into the night, and we'd have these discussions of faith. And Arnold was a very gentle man. What I loved about him was how he would pivot from what the Muslim thought to what the Bible taught. That's a really critical skill. So no matter what the debate was on sin or hell or prophets or gospels or crucifixion, discussions would come and he was gracious, he would ask questions and he'd let them talk. Then, no matter what they said, he would nod his head and he'd say, oh, that was very interesting. But the Bible says, and then he would just go right into Scripture. He wouldn't actually answer all of their objections all the time. He wouldn't rise to the bait when they would say very critical things about Jesus or the gospel. This very gentle demeanor. He'd nod his head. He'd say, oh, that is so interesting. Thank you for sharing it. But the Bible says, yeah. and he would just go to what he wanted to say. So because he listened to them, because he was gracious, because he didn't get them upset, then they would listen to him. So I think if you're young and you're, you're still figuring out culture, maybe you don't know the Proverbs yet, you don't know all the entryways, ask them questions about what they believe. Nod your head and say, oh, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. But the Bible says, and, and very intentional about that conjunction, but the Bible says, I don't counsel agreeing with Muslims mm-hmm. um, when we don't agree. If you can agree with, in a way that's not duplicitous, then I'm fine with agreeing. But when they say things that we don't quite agree with, then I like to say, oh, that's interesting, but... So you're not it. saying that makes sense. I'm not saying that's also right, and that's one of the right ways. I'm saying, okay. oh, that's interesting, thank you. But what I believe is different. So I would agree with David Hesselgrave that what we have in our differences with Muslims is what we want to talk about. And it's actually more important in evangelism than what we agree on. So we can affirm what we agree on, but where we want to spend our time is where we disagree. The nature of sin, the nature of salvation, the deity of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, the coming King, and eternal life. We want to talk about things that we actually differ on because that is what's at stake for the soul. Right. All right. Thanks so much, Dick. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, guys.